know it's frustrating. I know you hear these numbers and you think, dear God, like the, the enormity of the climate crisis and you have all these people who care about climate change and they're not voting? What the hell? But this is actually extraordinarily good news, I would suggest to you. The climate movement doesn't have a persuasion problem. It's got a turnout problem. The numbers reveal that environmentalists don't show up as often as the overall population does when there is an election. So what gives? This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and in this episode, we're taking a hard look at how many Americans care about climate issues and how many of those people actually vote or don't. To figure this out, the podcast team sat down with Nathaniel Stinnett, founder of the Environmental Voter Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit that finds environmentalists across the U.S. and makes sure that they vote in every election. We also discussed a new Democratic proposal to achieve 100% carbon neutrality by 2050. The idea was put forward by moderate established Democrats rather than progressives. Is this a sign of policy alignment on the left? Or will this so-called Green New Deal alternative be a source of conflict within the Democratic Party? We recorded this show live on stage last week at the Sun Valley Forum in Ketchum, Idaho, which you should really go to if you get the chance. This was our second year recording at the forum, thanks to Amy Christensen, who does a fantastic job of putting on the event. So set a reminder to check out the Sun Valley Forum next summer. You won't regret it. And with that, here is our show. Uh, how is our audience doing today? Yeah. Fantastic. Excellent energy in the room. Thank thousands you so of people. much. Thousands of people are <laughs> here. Millions. This is actually the biggest live recording ever in the history of the United States. <laughs> That's what Trump would say. Uh, so a Republican is on message here. I can doctor the photos to prove it. <laughs> sure you can. With that, I will complete our introductions. You've got a flavor of our team here up on stage. Uh, I'm Julia Piper. I'm a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, which is a news company uh, covering the energy transition in depth. And you may be wondering, you know, why do we even do a bipartisan podcast? Are we, are we masochists? And the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> but also because we really feel that, you know, as much as people would like to wish away people across the aisle or in the other political party, we are stuck here together. And we want to break people out of their information echo chambers and hopefully through, you know, time and debate, we find some common ground, specifically on the issue we cover, which is climate and energy issues. So... We don't question the climate science on this podcast, but we do get into the politics and the policies, and it can get kind of heated. So uh, part of this is to explore disagreements and also find a way to walk away kind of as friends, I guess. And so to do that... As friends, I guess? I mean... <laughs> like, like we spent a decent amount of time together. It's not like, you know... I, I didn't realize we were still in a questionable status. <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That, that was just a joke. 
<laughs> no, we do actually end our show with this segment called If You Can't Say Something Nice, where we try to have each of the Democrat and Republicans say something redeeming about the opposing party. So just a heads up that that is coming, coming down the pike. And so with that, let me introduce my co-host officially. Beside me, I have Brandon Hurlbut. He's the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. Uh, he's also President Obama's liaison to the energy and environmental cabinet agencies. And he's currently a partner at the consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. Shane Skelton is our Republican. He's a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. So actually, Shane, I want to start with you. We, we performed at Sun Valley last year, this exact podcast, and you didn't bring your family at the time because there were wildfires raging, and you had a six-month-old child, and you decided not to bring him as a result. It was kind of a foreshadowing, I think, of the future we're expecting to see. Yeah, so that was actually, honestly, the second consecutive time that I had bought tickets for my family and not brought them because of wildfires here. This time, I didn't bring them just because I didn't want to. But <laughs> um, when Fair. we... When we landed, I, I always love the open space and the nature, right? Like Los Angeles doesn't look that way, and there's there's farmland or ranch land, and there's cows, and it's beautiful. And then I remembered, like, where is Brandon? Because if it were up to him, we wouldn't have cows anymore. Oh, we couldn't geez. fly anymore. We couldn't do any of these things. <laughs> You're referring really to the Green New Deal do. FAQ, so, I think. Yeah. Oh, the FAQ. Yeah. That. <laughs> what, did you guys read the Green New Deal? <laughs> Shane's making things up again. Well, I think now's the time to introduce our other guest on the show. This special episode, we have Nathaniel Stinnett, founder of the Environmental Voter Project, a nonpartisan organization committed to getting more environmentalists to vote in every election. Nathaniel, you've worked on a variety of campaigns for the U.S. Senate, congressional candidates, state and mayoral campaigns. You're a frequent public speaker, and you've been dubbed the voting guru. So thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here, guys. So, yeah, you got a flavor of how this goes. Uh, no, no pressure, but you got to keep up a little bit with these I'm, guys. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> So let's get into the depth on the Environmental Voter Project. As I understand it, you almost never talk about the environment, and you don't care who voters are voting for. So what exactly are you doing? I know, it's crazy, right? Uh, we are laser-focused on just two things. We use data analytics to identify environmentalists who aren't voting, and then we use the latest behavioral psychology to turn them into better voters. That's it. We find non-voting environmentalists, and we turn them into better voters. We are in the behavior change business, not the mind-changing business. How do you measure that? So from election to election, how do you measure the outcomes of your efforts? So we actually submit all of our work to randomized control trials. And I won't make people's eyes cross by describing what those are, but they're kind of like the... the Good, because Shane doesn't do nuance. He doesn't do nuance, that's right. No, we win elections, that's what we do. <laughs> oh man, we still have 35 minutes left to go on this, and we're already there. Uh, <laughs> uh, these are like the gold standard of behavioral science experiments, and we submit our work to this. This podcast? Yeah. Th this podcast <laughs> is. And what we'll do is we'll find these non-voting environmentalists and turn them out and submit our work to these experiments, and it allows us to show how much we increase turnout while controlling for all outside variables. And it's really exciting because we've been able to show just by using these, these little behavioral nudges, the kind of things you read about when you read behavioral economics books and things like that, which I'm sure you read a ton of. Almost Shane. always. Almost <laughs> always. Uh, and we've had some, some really dramatic results, increasing turnout to sometimes even three percentage points, which, I mean, can ask Hillary Clinton how big a deal 2% is. It's a, it's a big deal in this business, and we're dramatically increasing the number of environmentalists who vote. So I'm, I'm confused, though, because I, you know, we see the news about the youth protests, climate change climbing up the list of priorities, 
but you're saying that's just not translating in, into the voting booth? Like, how, what's the disconnect there? It's exactly right. It's enormously important for all of your listeners and everybody in the audience here to understand one building block of modern American politics, and that is this. Who you vote for is secret, but whether you vote or not, whether you show up at any given election, is public record. It's public record, and you better believe that politicians pay attention to that stuff. And when they poll people to figure out what priorities are important, do you think they poll non-voters? No way. They only poll voters. And so yes, we are seeing a really exciting climate movement now with more and more people pushing for climate leadership. But the truth is, the sometimes depressing truth is, politicians don't care what all Americans think. They only care what voters think because those are the people who decide whether they get to win or lose the next election. And so there is perhaps a hearts and minds energy that we're seeing, but not a political follow through. Is that right? That's exactly right. I would say the climate movement and even the environmental movement writ large right now does not have a persuasion problem. There are tens of millions of people who care deeply about climate or the environment. No, we've got a turnout problem. The truth is environmentalists don't show up as often as the overall population does whenever there's an election. And I'm happy to share data from election after election after election. Nathaniel, can you share some of these behavioral examples that you use, like getting voters to commit to a plan, um, or in some of the numbers in some of the most important states of voters who are on the sidelines that you're dragging out? It's exactly right. So, so first, just some context. We identify voters, and I'm happy to get into this at, at a later point if you're interested, but when we identify these voters, we're so confident that we have found people who don't just care about climate or the environment, but listed as one of their top two priorities, then at that point, we can afford to be agnostic with our messaging. At that point, I mean, as long as we know we're talking to the right person, we could talk about chocolate chip cookies if that was the best way to get them to vote. And so, we, we don't actually talk about chocolate chip cookies, but to your question, we use some really interesting sort of behavioral nudges to turn people from non-voters into voters. And what I think is so interesting about it is we don't appeal to people as rational beings. We appeal to them as social beings. We use peer pressure, we use social pressure. We use all the crap that like upset you in fourth grade on the playground, but totally Doesn't worked. Doesn't sound like the healthiest thing <laughs> That's <you>. right. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, sometimes it does make people feel uncomfortable, but it works, and I'll give you some examples. We will text someone or call someone, and we'll say, hey Brandon, did you know last time there was an election, 83 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? Is that like totally juvenile? Yes, but it works. Peer pressure works. You care what your neighbors are doing, and sometimes you wanna to conform to those societal norms. We often go a step further and even send people copies of their personal voting histories to remind them that we know whether they vote or not. And you better believe that increases turnout quite a bit. They wouldn't rebel and say, hey, like, how did you find this? Like, bugger off. I could see that push, put people pushing back on that. Yeah, but I'm not on the ballot. <laughs> I don't care if they like the Environmental Voter Project or not. All I know is that these are dyed-in-the-wool super environmentalists. These are people you shake them awake at night and they scream climate change, and they're not voting. And if sending them an obnoxious letter can jack turnout two or three percentage points, you better believe we're going to do it. And who are those people? Give some examples of what those people look like, because I think the audience may be surprised to well, learn about this. And compounding that, how do they vote? I mean, we don't know if they vote Democrat or Republican, right? But I, I, I think it's important 
to our listeners to know that this isn't a one-sided deal, right? These right. people can vote for pro-environment and climate candidates regardless of whether they're Republican or Democrat. That's exactly right. So first, to, to Brandon's question, uh, they don't look like us, guys. I don't know what the environmental movement looked like 20 years ago, but I know that the stereotype that most of us live with of the white, wealthy, suburban preppy hopping out of his Prius ain't what the environmental movement is like anymore. These people who care about climate or the environment so much that it's one of their top two priorities are now more likely to be Latino or African American. They are more likely to make less than $50,000 a year than more. And yes, the stereotype about the, the environmental movement being young is somewhat true, but that's a, that's a really broad generalization and we're seeing a lot of variation among age groups too. And we're actually seeing a really big pop among uh, grandmothers. Women in their mm. late 60s and early 70s are now almost as, yeah, woohoo! Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, the- are, are those reliable voters generally, that demographic? Yes, they are, but we don't talk to the reliable voters. We only talk to those environmentalists who totally suck at voting. We, we find these super environmentalists, and the ones who are already voting, they don't need the environmental voter project's help. Campaigns are already gonna reach out to them. We only talk to the ones who aren't voting. It's so crazy to me that they would not be voting. So maybe it's worth taking a minute to, to talk about how you find the non-voters. I know it gets into some data crunching wonkiness, but uh, just give us the explanation as best you can. Yeah, so it, it's really two parts. The first is how do we find these super environmentalists? And then the second part is how do we separate the voters from the non-voters? So the first part, we will poll tens of thousands of people. These are enormous polls, but we get away with it because we only really ask two or three questions. We say, hey, what's your number one most important political priority? What's your number two most important political priority? Thanks, have a nice day. Just for our audience, can you tell us what a normal sample polling size is just so they can compare the 10,000 to? Four to 600 people. Normally when you are looking at a poll online or CNN or a campaign, it's four to 600 people. Now that doesn't mean those polls are inaccurate. It means those polls are very good at letting you know what very broad demographic groups feel about the questions that you're asking. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking to go really, really deep so that we can individually identify who these super environmentalists are. So we'll poll 10,000 people, isolate the ones who deeply care about climate or the environment, and then we'll work with data scientists to start looking for all the hidden patterns and correlations in what we know about these people. Because I know this makes people feel uncomfortable, but we all know that there's a lot of data out there, and you don't even need to steal it like Cambridge Analytica did two years ago. There's a lot of publicly available data out there. I think there. it's called borrowing. Borrowing, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Joking, joking, joking. You know, where you buy your sweaters, what car you just bought. I know my wife and I just got a new house, and the next day the moving company called us. Why? Because the bank sold our information to moving companies. All this information's out there, and we work with data scientists, and we say, Tell us about these people who list climate as their number one priority. And when, when you do, when you find these, these profiles of, of people who deeply care about the climate, you can then extrapolate from that and build a model of every single person in a state. And I know that sounds really complicated and convoluted. And creepy. And a little creepy, and a little creepy. It is frighteningly accurate, and we all need to know this is where the political world is. This is how political campaigns now target people. It's not by demographic group, it's on an individual level. 
So just to recap, you find voters that care about climate change through your own polling, then you use data science, data analytics to extrapolate and find the broader group of people in the states that you work in that also care about climate issues but do not vote. And so to put this in perspective, how many people are we talking about and does this matter at all for elections? Yeah, here are the big numbers. We've been able to identify 20.1 million already registered voters who care so deeply about climate or the environment that it's one of their top two priorities. 20.1 million, and that's out of about 208 million registered voters. So about 10% of registered voters list climate or the environment as one of their top two priorities. But here's the problem. They are awful voters. They might be registered to vote, but they ain't showing up. So theoretically, they could potentially spin an entire election if that group yeah, How many out. of these people are in Florida? Yeah. <laughs> A lot, a lot. Uh, in the 2018 midterms, we identified 1.2 million of these already registered super environmentalists who were unlikely to vote in the midterm elections. And what, what was the gubernatorial spread in that election? Uh, the gubernatorial was about 70,000, and I think the Senate spread was about 35,000 votes. I mean, these are enormous numbers, and I think it's so important to understand. And I. I know it's frustrating. I know you hear these numbers and you think, dear God, like the enormity of the climate crisis and you have all these people who care about climate change and they're not voting? What the hell? But this is actually extraordinarily good news, I would suggest to you. Because we live in a moment in time when trying to change people's minds about climate change is damn near impossible. I don't know how to do it, mm -hmm. but if you can find people who already believe what you believe and care deeply about the issue that you care deeply about, and you just need to tweak their behavior a little bit and turn them into voters, well, I won't claim that's easy. It's not. But it's a heck of a lot easier. So, so I shouldn't try to get my uncle at Thanksgiving to, you know, care about climate change, but maybe instead get my girlfriend on Instagram to put down the paper straw and actually get out and vote. Exactly. Well, but you don't communicate, I think you said, with these voters about environmentalism about climate. So I guess my question there would be, what if you do your job perfectly? Yep. You turn out all these voters and they just vote for people who don't give a shit about the climate. Like that's just what they end up doing. That's a great question. So first, remember we are not just targeting casual environmentalists. We're targeting people who list climate or the environment as one of their top two priorities. So chances are they will vote in a way that aligns with their priorities. But even if they don't, and I'm so glad you asked this question, even if they don't, it's still important to vote. And this gets back to what I said earlier. Whether you vote or not is public record. And if you don't vote, your opinions don't matter at all to politicians. And I know that sounds cynical, but it's just arithmetic. I mean, it's how elections work. So the politicians will find you, the voter, and they will know then that you care about climate, even if you didn't write a letter or express it to them directly. That's right. As, as we're all sitting right here, there are probably 100 polls in the field around the country. 100 polls right now. But they aren't polling unregistered voters. They're not even polling all registered voters. They are only polling people whose previous voting history tells them they are likely to show up in the election you care about. And so, Shane, obviously it's important for people to vote for the so-called right person. But even if they don't, even if an environmentalist goes and writes their dog's name in on the ballot, it drives policymaking because politicians want to win elections. 
It's what motivates them more than anything is the prospect of winning or losing an election. I don't know. If you watch the Democratic primary play, you'd think that <laughs> no, politicians but, did not want to win but elections. But I want to make, make a point on that because in the, in the, there's a big debate happening in the Democratic Party about who is electable, right? right? So right now, the one thing Democrats can agree on is we want to beat Donald Trump. Everybody agrees on that. The, the debate is over who can do that. And so people are like prognosticating on who's electable and who's not. But if Nathaniel is successful and he brings a bunch of these voters off of the sideline who may be Latino uh, or younger, that could change the dynamic of who is electable or not. And I think that's really important for Democrats to realize. I think so. Thank you for, for saying that. But I, I would suggest that even if you don't care about environmental issues, that what you just said is an important point. I mean, electability is not sort of a two-dimensional game. It's a three-dimensional game. You can choose to view swing voters as those reliable voters in the middle who can go left or right. There are only about five to six million of them. Or you can view swing voters as the over 64 million people who are registered to vote but have never showed up once for any election. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we know for sure that those are the right people to go after. But you do need to think in both of those directions. Do you, on that note, do you target your efforts state specifically? So for example, voters in California don't matter at all in a presidential. Voters in New York don't matter at all. We're getting to a place in Ohio and Florida where they don't matter either. Do you focus your efforts on states You already that got Florida locked up? That's your plan? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I, know, I, I noticed that, that too. But, I uh, you're confident. Well, that well, you're... No, 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 but seriously, do, <laughs> in your efforts, do you, you know, is a California voter worth as much to you as a Pennsylvania voter? I guess is what I'm asking. Right. Great question. So. We target specific states, but not for the reasons that you alluded to. So we're currently in six states. We're in Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And soon, although I can't make any announcements now, soon we're gonna be expanding into some additional states. Now, why are we in those states? Because those states have enormous numbers of non-voting environmentalists. Not because they're like sexy presidential swing states. I don't think anybody would claim Massachusetts. I was just going to say Massachusetts. Say, <laughs> right. That's in play, right? <laughs> but, but we need this big denominator, right? If we move the electorate two points, if we, if we increase turnout of environmentalists by two, three, four percentage points, that only makes a difference if you're talking to a large number of people. So we need to have a big denominator. The second reason we do that is... Dear God, everybody who cares about climate policy, you need to realize that the entire game is not the federal government. Local and state policymakers can save the planet. Amen. And draw maps, by the way. And they can draw, draw maps. maps. <laughs> and so we take this year-round approach. I mean, in 2019 alone, in our six states, we've mobilized environmentalists in over 400 elections already. Because local and state elections matter, but also, if you're trying to change people's behavior over time, Every election is an opportunity to change their habits. Which is interesting because I think you can totally change the structure of the electorate, really. You are creating a new trend. For instance, I know the stat of environmental Protestants. They have already done this. They reliably turn out for their issues, and they represent something like 15% of the U.S. population, but make up 26% of people who voted in the 2018 midterms, right? So it shows how get out the vote can be so powerful and really change issues for decades to come, I think. That's exactly right, and it's something that the NRA has done very, very well. I mean, the NRA has gotten people who deeply care about gun rights to view voting 
as the highest form of civic engagement. It is the number one most important thing that you can do if you care deeply about gun rights. And I would suggest to you that the climate movement and the environmental movement needs to view voting the same way. So we talked about the fact. Great, and applause for that. If you're clapping, you know, here's what I'm gonna do today. I'm gonna write Nathaniel a check. And so he won't say it, but everybody here should and our listeners should too. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. So we talked about the fact that politicians, you know, see data on, on the voters and then they will probably, we're assuming here, they will respond to that. And I think we're already seeing that. So the part I want to move into now are policies that we've seen introduced recently, which indicate that politicians are already seeing some changes in the voter base. Even President Trump had a whole speech on the environment recently that people kind of scratch their heads at, but it shows that the White House is seeing something in their numbers that say environmentalism will matter in the 2020 election. So I think an important one to talk about is something that just happened this week, where Democratic leaders in the House and Energy Commerce Committee announced they would pursue legislation this year that calls for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. While this is certainly an ambitious goal, it's actually being framed as a more politically and technology achievable goal than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. So for reference, the announcement was made by Representative Frank Pallone, a New Jersey Democrat and chairman of the committee, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and by New York Representative Paul Tonko, head of the Environment and Climate Change Subcommittee. So, Brandon, I wanted to put this to you because it's actually creating quite a stir online, uh, the fact that, or the question of whether this proposal is actually as bold as it needs to be, carbon neutral by 2050. It sounds pretty big, but people are saying that that just doesn't actually jive with the science and that we need to move faster, be bolder to really address the climate crisis. So from the Democrat camp, what do you think of this proposal that came out this week? Let me say a few things. First of all, this is great news uh, that the committee announced this goal and that they're going to create legislation around it. Um, I think, you know, the activism is working. Uh, what Sunrise and AOC and all of these uh, people have done to turbocharge this and get this on the agenda is, is, is great. Now we're in a much better place because, as Shane has said in the past, you know, the committee of jurisdiction that actually makes laws needs to do this. So now the relevant committee in the Congress, the Energy and Commerce Committee, is taking this up. But let me, let me, let me interrupt there because I think two things are critically important about this. One is, for people who don't track Congress very closely, they go home for all of August. And that means they're not dealing with other Congress people, they're dealing with their constituents. And what I view this as is the opposite of what you view this as. I view this as they don't want to go home and get asked questions about the Green New Deal because they want nothing to do with it, they don't want to have to defend it, and they don't want to be near it. So they introduced something so they could say, no, the Green New Deal is bullshit, obviously, but Maybe we're doing more something. more established Democrats, more centrist yeah, Democrats. Yeah, we're doing yeah. something good. And the second thing I would tell you, Brandon, is when they sidelined AOC and when they said, you know, the Green New Deal is aspirational because it's a set of principles, but it's not actual legislation. And we're the Committee of Jurisdiction, as you just mentioned, so we can legislate but that's not what they did. They literally came out and said, we have a set of principles and ideas. No, you're the committee of jurisdiction, write a bill. Patrick, who I work with sitting right down there, worked on that committee. He wrote bills. He didn't write talking points about bills that one could write in the future. That's not how it works. <laughs> yes, so they did I say they come out with bills later this year. I but think this they're is dodging their responsibility. Thank they're you, saying, Julie. we don't want to answer for the Green New Deal over August, so we're going to put up some other press release, and at some point in the future, maybe we'll figure out if we want to legislate. Here's where I was also Oh, by going. the way, a Republican introduced another carbon tax bill today. So while Democrats are putting out press releases, Republicans are putting plans in place to actually 
mitigate the situation. That's a good thing. I don't think that would be happening without the Green New Deal. I, I think that has forced this conversation and put it at the top of the agenda, and, not, and now we're having this debate that wasn't happening. And what Shane will do and the media will do uh, is they like to you know, present this big conflict within the Democratic Party. But here's where I think the party is united that's reflected in this goal today. The Democratic Party wants to see bold action on, cl on climate that reflects the science, right? Now, how we get there, you know, there's some, there's some room for debate. And what the Democrats are arguing over is like, should we get to net zero emissions by 2050 or 2030? That's a great debate to have. And I think, you know, there's some confusion over that. And it is a little bit confusing because in the Green New Deal resolution, you know, you can read it sort of different ways. There's two key phrases in the resolution. You know, one uh, phrase says that uh, we need to reach the net zero global emissions by 2050. So you could read that as saying that's what the U.S. should do. Or you could say, well, the U.S. has to get there faster. Why? Because we were a big part of the, of the problem. And two, who's going to have all of these clean energy technologies the rest of the world needs to reach net zero global emissions. We can do that here in the US and then sell those products to other countries. So some people really want to get there you know, faster. The other key phrase is it calls for a 10-year mobilization you know, um, effort to reach these goals like upgrading all the buildings, get to 100% clean energy. So what does that mean? Does that mean we have to mobilize in 10 years you know, and then get to the goals by 2050? Or you could read it as we need to do this by 2030. So that's where some of the confusion is. But I think Democrats are far more united on this than the media and Republicans would like to portray. Yeah, so for context on that, some of the headlines about this bill that was introduced this week were like, Democrats' new climate plan can't be serious from the New Republic, or House Dems try to quash Green New Deal with bogus alternative. The bogus alternative is carbon neutrality by 2050, which was not even remotely on the radar, perhaps even a year or two before. Eight months ago. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I remember, almost, we've said know, this on the show, Hillary Clinton refused to support a carbon tax. We are now arguing about net zero emissions by 2050 or 2030. That is a massive shift. No, no. We're arguing about a statement about net zero emissions. And what I want to see is how would they implement it? Because I don't think, actually, I shouldn't say this. A lot of Republicans are opposed. That's true. A lot of Republicans are opposed. But I actually think a lot of them would be open to having a discussion about actual ideas. But how do you get to carbon neutrality by 2050? Because I want to be there. I absolutely want to be there. But the question is how? And the reason I resist it is not because I don't want it, it's because I don't know how it's going to get done. And so another press release doesn't do me any good. I want to see a bill that helps get us there. Maybe it's grid mod, right? Maybe it's some sort of renewable portfolio standard. Maybe There's it's a, electrification of everything. Maybe it's electrification of everything. That's fantastic. But I, want to, I don't want another press release. I want someone to tell me how they're going to do it. I, I would suggest that the answer to these questions is not found in some perfectly elegant policy proposal. And I know this sounds like enormously cynical, but guys, 2% of voters in the 2016 presidential election listed climate or the environment as their number one priority. Just 2%. 7% listed it as their number one priority in the midterms. And that's growing and growing and growing. And the reason why three years ago we didn't have a single climate question in any of the presidential debates, and now Democrats want an entire debate just about climate, is because they are responding to what voters see. And it's also why Republicans, I think, are pushing this. I mean, in 2008, one could argue that John McCain was just as much a climate candidate as Barack Obama was. Or more. Or perhaps more. It isn't like there's some, like, deeply ingrained like ideological aversion to leading on climate change in the Republican Party. 
No, they just want to win elections, just like Democrats do. And so if environmental voters start showing up, it's not only going to push Democrats to have more aggressive policy proposals, but it will get some Republicans to finally listen to their better angels and say, you know what, I don't care about all that Koch brothers money. I now think I can win election by saying what I believe. How do you get the politician to actually vote for the policies? I think this is something that even Democrats, um, you know, we can't be guaranteed that they will actually vote on climate, even if they, you know, introduce a concept or a proposal or a press release. How do you get the follow through to happen? They got to do a lot of work to get out the vote, get people in their own party to do that. And I think the fact that you are nonpartisan speaks to that. You're trying to change, you know, people's broader mentalities on this. So what do you think about that? How do you get out the vote among the politicians? Right. Well, the politicians go where the votes in their district are. Period. Period. Politicians go where the votes are. It, it, it is just the basic arithmetic of how elections work. Either you get enough votes or you don't get to be a politician anymore. And, and again, like... Unless and, gerrymandering helps you. It, gerrymandering <laughs> helps you. And that, that's enormously important to bring up. Politics is a pretty efficient marketplace, right? The people who supply the product, the, the people who make policies, spend all their time measuring what the marketplace wants. They pull the crap out of voters every single day. And when they find out what they care about, they fall over themselves trying to deliver it. But you bring up a very good point, Julia. There are two things that warp the efficiency of this marketplace, gerrymandering and money. Absolutely. And it's very important to recognize that. But it still can't overcome the, the basic arithmetic of you don't get to be a politician unless there are a lot of votes. And that's so important. It's so important for Republicans as well, and I know that, that Shane beats this drum a lot, and there are some other people in the Republican Party who are talking about this. There are plenty of Republicans who would not just vote on pricing carbon, but would lead on it if they thought there was support among voters in their district. Yeah, I, I think what we have on the Republican side is I think we have a communications problem because I think voters actually would support it, but no one's aware of this. You watch Fox News, you listen to conservative radio, and they're very, very anti-climate. And so if you're a representative from a conservative district, you know where you need to vote. But I actually think realistically, a lot of these voters don't necessarily agree with Sean Hannity. I think a lot of these voters would be fine with the policy that would clean up the environment. And I think what conservatives need to do is communicate better to the grassroots so that they're letting their representatives know, we're watching this, we're watching you, and help us out. We don't want to cost you your job, but we also don't want you voting down every bill that might make it easier for my kids to breathe. I would say in response to your question, Julia, we need to have a strong outside and inside game, both. So for the activists out there, Keep it up. Keep the pressure on. As these members come back for their, um, you know, town halls in August when they're home, you know, for the month, put the pressure on. And then in our inside game, House Energy and Commerce Committee, this is good. You know, we need to figure out how to navigate the Congress, organize votes within the Congress, and get, and get this stuff moving. What's interesting is actually Republican pollster Frank Luntz is testifying this week in the Senate for the Democrats' special committee on the climate crisis. Uh, he, again, a notorious Republican pollster, has found that voters really care about energy and climate issues, and this is actually maybe moving the needle on the right. And uh, I thought the panel name is interesting, the one that Luntz is speaking on. It's called The Right Thing to Do, Conservatives for Climate Action. So... We're seeing the narrative totally shift now. It's fascinating. Well, and anyone in this audience or in our listening audience who's seen the movie Vice now knows that um, Frank Luntz was the one who made global warming climate change. He said it's a little bit less scary for voters. They won't care as much about climate change as they will about global warming. He was actually a huge part 
of turning the Republican Party away from climate solutions. So the fact that he is now directing the Republican Party to go towards climate solutions, I don't care if he thinks it's the right thing or not. He's telling Republicans, voters care about this, and you know who cares about it more? Voters under 40. And so that's where your future lies. So I'm actually quite excited about this, and I'm interested to see what he says in his testimony. Well, it's now time to go to our final segment of the show, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts and our guests this week have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. So I guess, Brandon, let's go to you first. I'm going to say something nice about uh, Representative Greg Walden uh, from Oregon. He is the ranking member, so he's like the, the number two, or he's the most powerful Republican on the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee. So today, uh, at this hearing, uh, he said some pretty good stuff about climate. Um, he wants to accelerate deployment of clean energy technologies. Um, he wants to get to decarbonization. He wants Republicans to legislate on climate change. Uh, so this is a positive step forward. Shane? Okay, so I was going to do something terrible, and I would have gotten booed off stage, so I'm not going to do, do that. Do it. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But what I will say, and I'm not trying to paint you with a brush, because I realize that EVP is, is nonpartisan, and I love that. Um, but my say something nice is going to go to Nathaniel Stinnett because I know you've worked in democratic politics in the past, but this is so much bigger than that. And I, my frustration with my party is that I agree with the Republican Party on most issues. I'm not leaving the party. I'm really, really frustrated that we're not embracing this issue. I'm frustrated that Republicans who do embrace this issue aren't voting that way. And I'm frustrated that ones who, who care are not turning out. And so I, I guess I want to say thank you for all that you do. And, and I do believe that when you guys turn out, voters, Republican and Democrat, to do the right thing. Members of Congress and candidates for Congress are going to see that, and they're going to change their behavior, and we're really grateful for the work that you do. Thank you. All right, Nathaniel, putting you in the hot seat here. What, what can you add to this section? Man, and I was going to say something awful about you, Shane. <laughs> no, no, no. You know uh, what I was going to say. I would have gotten chased out of this place. Would've. I'm not going to do you it. You would have. Uh, so uh, because I, I run a nonpartisan organization, I'm going to say something nice about a left-of-center group and a right-of-center group. The right-of-center group is called Republic EN. It's run by Bob Inglis, a, a former congressman from South Carolina. And they are getting conservatives who care deeply about climate change to interact with their members of Congress and other leaders, and yes, vote more often, to let them know that they have support for the climate action in their district. And I think that's really, really important work. On left of center, I'm a huge fan of Climate Hawks Vote. They're an endorsement group and a PAC that supports leaders and endorses them, but they don't go into races where they endorse the lesser of two evils. They search around the country and find true climate champions who are really pushing the envelope and are real heroes on this and just support those people, and I think they do extraordinary work. And just for fun, on Climate Hawks Vote, so R.L. Miller, who runs Climate Hawks Vote, very, very liberal, and yet she's one of my neighbors. And when our community was burning down in the wildfires, one of the first people to reach out and make sure that me and my kids were okay. So wonderful person. I don't know. Both have been guests do, on political climate. Yeah, we've had Bob Inglis <laughs> on as well. And yeah, that's really the point of our show is to to show that we don't always have to agree, but we can still care about each other as individuals and respect each other's opinions, and then go to happy hour and fight a little bit more, and you know, on and on it goes. And then, um, and then you wind dance. up at Whiskey Jacks, and you can see some machines moves. I mean, this guy <laughs> on the dance floor. Wow. He's not lying. He's not lying. You can get after it. Well, with that, we will end our show there. One thing we know is that both parties uh, like to get reelected. So, you know, use that as a tool to make climate a top issue. 
Uh, and as a reminder, this is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. So tweet us there. We're usually pretty good about getting back to you about wonky policy questions or about the show or if you got beef, we'll take that up too. Shane responds except when he's at the club down the road drinking martinis. I saw that on Twitter today. Um, oh, yeah, but anyway. Venmo? I was going to use that for my contribution. Can I do that? I'm sure you can. You can't find the podcast on Venmo, but you can maybe reach out to, uh, to Nathaniel. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to our audience. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. for being. And that's a wrap for this week. Although I do have one quick correction to offer. If you were confused when you heard me say environmental Protestant, well, you're justified. I meant to say evangelical Protestant, so apologies for that. Thank you again to Amy Christensen and the Sun Valley Forum for inviting us to speak. Thanks also to our producer, Victoria Simon. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. If you liked what you heard, we'd be even more grateful if you left Political Climate a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us reach other people who care about these issues. Next week, we'll be back sharing our takeaways from the second round of Democratic debates, so be sure to check that out. For now, until soon.